Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Now, Mount Hermon is a snow-covered peak. What could that mean, that we're, we're going to come through Hermon? Well, we know snow can be a symbol of purity, yes. But it can also uh, be a symbol of tribulation or judgment, like the leprosy, it would say it was, and it was white as snow. So is it going to be judgment and tribulation? Or is it going to be a transformation of purity? It's going to repent, depend upon repentance. Job 38, 22, and 23. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? So the snow on Mount Hermon, as we look at the snow, as beautiful as it is, it can represent a day of war and battle. And we know right now that this is where the enemy is dug in, just on the other side, lobbing the rockets in. And if you did the Wars of Kings with me, and you went through the 10 plagues, and the 10 siege tactics, you go back through this week's news and see if you can say, there it is, there it is, there it is. I mean, it's like you can just fill in with the news, the, the different tactics that are being used. But what Hermon is suggesting is that there's going to be a purified, faith-filled Israel, and they are going to return at a time that is associated with extreme judgment, a time of war and a time of divinely imposed diseases. Should sound familiar. And so the Midrash specifically states that the return to the temple in the time of redemption is going to be in three hours after the end of the Roman exile, which we're still in, by the way. Remember the Roman beast, it's still all over the world through the, the organizations that it has spread. And they say, what do we mean by three hours? They say, this means it's going to happen quickly. Don't read it as three literal hours. Read it as meaning something that happens quickly. So here's what the Midrash says. In three hours, in other words, very quickly, the Holy One, blessed is he, will exact punishment from the wicked Esau, Edom, and his chieftains. Adonai will, number one, arise from the ashes of the temple, from his holy throne above. And this is so weird. One of the examples they gave in this Midrash, which I didn't put it on the slide, because I thought, well, that's just too odd to tell people about. We'll just, you know, you know, <laughs> go to number two after that. But they said the Holy One, since the temple was destroyed, has been like a chicken, like a like a hen covered with ash. And the same way that a hen will stand up and shake her feathers off and throw off the ashes, this is what he's going to do when he arises. When he arises to take vengeance for his people, it'll be like a hen throwing off the ashes. And yesterday, as I was watching some footage, there was a place that had been bombed and sitting right down there in the middle of that dust and concrete ash was a chicken doing that exact thing, shaking the feathers to get the ashes off of her. I thought, now how coincidental is that? But the idea is that. Because his people were exiled from the temple, he's been in mourning with them. Again, he's, he's lurking to do us good. He's lurking, observing. 
journeying around to see, is it time to bring them back? Is it time to arise from the ashes of the destroyed temple? And that process is basically, he stands up from the holy throne above. Second thing he will do, once he stands up and kind of like the the picture we're supposed to get, because he's a spirit, we can't say he looks like a chicken. All right. That's not what we're saying. We're saying it's the kind of the principle of standing up and just shaking off everything that's settled over the last 2000 years. And then he will ascend. His authority will be made manifest and he will punish the nations with judgments, which goes back to the coastlands. He's saying, come over here. We're going to have a judgment now and we'll see, have you redrawn the lines? And then the third thing that will happen, the third quote unquote hour, he will be exalted in all the earth. All the nations will have to acknowledge him. And of course, Edom, Edom, Esau is part of this judgment. We know that Edom helped Babylon destroy the first temple. You can read Psalm 137.7. You can read Amos 1.11. Edom, Esau helped destroy the first temple. They destroyed the second temple. Remember, the, the sages see modern Esau, Edom as Rome. And they have oppressed Israel throughout the period of their exile. Remember, the, the Roman system is all over the world now through its organizations. And in every generation, they try to destroy the people, blur the boundaries, assimilate, absorb. And it says for these three things, Edom will be punished in three hours. In other words, Edom will be punished very quickly. And that's why I think Herod is associated with these, what the gifts that these three wise men brought to Yeshua. He was the prototype of this Edomite Roman because he was literally an Edomian and he's a Roman. He's a Roman governor. He's riding that beast and it's that red beast. And weirdly, he was known for enhancing the building of the second temple, but at the very same time, murdering thousands of pious Jews. And contributing to the graft in the temple. It's like he could do two things simultaneously. So we know that this fraudulent Jew, this Idumean, King Herod, he was the product of a forced conversion. If we follow the history back, his heart wasn't in the Torah. His heart was in Rome. The temple was just something for him to bring glory to himself. And when he was faced with the true king, when he was faced with the star of Jacob, he was a threat to Herod in every way because Herod didn't have faith. He didn't have faithfulness. He didn't have the bloodline. He wasn't holy. He didn't have spiritual authority. He knew that by prophecy, his people were going to be destroyed. So why were these three gifts such a threat? And remember, these astronomers, they come from the east. Well, Herod knew that the return of Israel with her King Messiah is going to be a great gift return from the nations. They were exiled into the nations, which was actually a gift to the nations because they would be blessed. Remember, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. There is a blessing upon the descendants of Abraham. Didn't feel it that way, but there is a blessing. And so when they return, they're still a gift. And what was said is the nations of the earth, because the prophets say that the nations of the world are going to bring the 12 tribes of Israel from the lands of their exile, they say they're going to bring these people as gifts to King Messiah, that these people will literally become their gifts to bring to the new ruler of the world. So they're going to return, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, they're going to return to the mountain of frankincense and myrrh. 
That's that symbol of their pure prayers. Why is it important to pray today? Because it's it's offering up the incense. You're preparing to take your place on the temple mount. And remember the gold that we will be carried on the shoulders of the high priest in those gold settings. We'll be part of his new government. And that's what shoulders represent often in scripture. It represents government and bearing the burden. So even as we are born on the shoulders of King Messiah, we become part of that government that bears the burden of the world, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those three gifts told Herod that the means by which the exiles would be restored to their land and holiness, that the true king was present. I see him, but not near, right? He, he came and then he left, but he'll be back. There's nothing Herod was doing on the Temple Mount or in Jerusalem that could rival that gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because it represented the tribes, the descendants of Abraham returning to a specific place. And would that threaten Herod? You bet, because remember, he's also a Roman beast. Roman's not going to, Rome is not going to give up Israel, not without a fight. And so he was worried that his government was about to be deposed by the authentic. King of Kings, the star of Jacob, the scepter of the Holy One from the tribe of Judah. So why would this gift be brought by wise strangers? Well, that's another meaning for that word. Tashuri, journey with me, journey down with me. It's like gift. You're a gift with me. And these wise strangers brought these specific gifts. So where are they getting the Tashuri journey down? is related to a gift. 1 Samuel 9, 7, Saul said to his servant, behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present, no teshura, to bring to the man of God. What do we have? So in this case, a gift is teshura. And the man, Saul, who is the future King Shaul, he's saying, you know what? There's nothing we have that is a gift great enough to bring to a prophet. What gift can we bring to a prophet? Well, this is the, the message that was very important to Herod, as he, he knows they've got gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that they're bringing the symbols of the exiles to their future king, who is going to say, come with me and be a gift the nations will return them. You say, well, how am I going to get to Jerusalem? Well, here's what Isaiah 66, 18 says. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Remember the coastlands according to your people and your tongue. And they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tuval, and Yavan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord in a clean vessel. Remember, there's no wickedness in Jacob. There's no blemish. 
There's no blemish in you. And so rather than using their chariots and horses, in other words, their war vehicles, to chase Israel around and attack them, these wise nations are going to convert those war vehicles to carry the descendants of Abraham to King Messiah. Rather than using their camels and mules, which were commercial transport, to enlarge Babylon, they're going to reappropriate them to carry Israel as gifts to the house of Adonai. Because see, these wise nations, they don't have a proper gift for Adonai. They don't have a proper gift for King Messiah. What are you going to take to the prophet? The only proper gift they can bring to Yeshua is to return their purified, faith-filled people. These are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham, remember, he is the Rosh. He is the head of your Emunah. And so those who sing, and there's going to be another meaning of Tashuri. You hear Shir for song? Tashuri. They sing the song of the sea after the war chariots of Pharaoh were destroyed. And so what's going to happen? There are going to be war vehicles that pursue Israel to destroy them completely, to erase their boundaries. But there are going to be wise nations that once they understand, they're going to convert their war vehicles. They're going to convert their commercial transportation to return the descendants of Abraham's as Abraham as gifts to King Messiah. They're going to be returning from the north. They've been hidden with Messiah. And they're going to come through the mountain of Emunah. They're going to come through the growth of their faith. They're going to come through the holiness of Mount Hermon. Because Israel, they are still the people. And Israel is still the land. It hasn't changed. That's why nothing makes sense right now. Israel is the people who know what is written in the ancient covenant. Israel is the people who live by the ancient covenant. And what they need now is their land to live that ancient covenant. How will they all get home? Different ways. Different ways. How does this relate to the resurrection? Not exactly sure. I don't have a timeline. I'm not that smart. I just know that this is a way of explaining to us part of that return. And so let Edom, let the red beast, let the nations of the red beast be warned. Ezekiel 36, 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely in the fire of my jealousy, I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. They've been warned. They've been warned. But Israel is the gift that is going to be sent home, carried home, drawn home. Adonai is lurking and looking for opportunities to bring us back and to stand against those who are speaking against the Holy One, his eternal promises to the descendants of Abraham, and the land is part of that covenant. That land is part of the agreement. It's non-negotiable. What do we know? Isaiah 9, 6 says, A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
the government of King Messiah is coming. The footsteps of Messiah are coming. Is it our generation? Or is this a preparatory generation? Is this a generation where people will start to come through the quote-unquote north, the hidden north, where they will begin to trickle home? Is it the next generation? Or is it the next? I don't know. But every generation must think of it as if this is the generation. Every generation must examine themselves for idols and faithlessness and say, what do I need that will identify me as a descendant of Abraham? Receiving the message of Messiah Yeshua, walking in his righteousness and his faithfulness so that we are prepared to live in a holy land. And remember, the rabbis say it'll come in three hours. In other words, quickly. The devastation of Edom, the red beast of the earth, and all the nations associated with that red beast, they will be destroyed quickly. And here's what Revelation 22.20 says. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Adon Yeshua. The grace of Adon Yeshua be with all. Amen. Twice it says amen. We are going to come from the mountain of Amana. We are going to come with faith. That's how we're going to come through. The same way Father Abraham came through and journeyed down from those mountains, that's the way we're going to go in. And if you would like a couple of extra references to take a look at, a really good passage is Isaiah 49, 18 through 23. It's another passage that describes how the nations will begin to bring the sons and daughters home. And uh, let's see. And this is from the Midrash, just a couple of sources from the Midrash where they're commenting on uh, Tashuri, which is related to Singh. And how it goes back to watching the the chariots of Pharaoh destroyed, and then they sang the song of the sea, and how this might be how it happens again. We are going to see the the war vehicles, the war implements of the dragon. Remember, Pharaoh stands for the dragon, and then he gives his authority to the beast. So we'll begin to see those war implements destroyed, absolutely destroyed, and we will be able to say. Uh, be able to sing as well, Tashuri. We'll be able to sing a song of redemption because it's it's referencing, and they believed in the Lord. And Moses sang. They believed in his words and they sang his praise. And so there's some references there from um, Hosea 2.28, Exodus 14.31 through 15.1, Psalm 106.12, and so forth. Those, those might be something you'd be interested in taking a look a little bit later and how to prepare. That's the important thing. How do we prepare? Be the gold, because wise men will be available to return us to our inheritance, right? Of course, the Torah portion was Bayura, and out of that, um, the salient part, I think, to what we're going to cover in the lesson today is going to be Genesis 18, 16 through 19, 29. Why did Lot want to settle in the most wicked city in the district? is the question. While Abraham is busy interceding, like, don't hurt them, don't hurt them, don't hurt them, we're thinking, Lot, have you lost your mind? He had been living a nomadic life with Abraham. Maybe he was tired of the nomadic life. He says, I'm going to settle down no matter what kind of wickedness I have to put up with, and I can get it up until the wicked part. I can understand wanting to settle down, 
you know, set up your business or whatever he was trying to do. I don't really understand putting up with any wickedness, the most extreme forms of wickedness in order to build that home, build that business, whatever had connected him to that place. But what has always struck me as odd, even from the time I was a little kid, because this is one of the Bible stories they will tell you in Sunday school. And depending on how old you are, they can ratchet it way down. Uh, They may not tell you all the details of why this city was so wicked. But by the time you're a teenager, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, that's why I wanted to read as much of the chapter as we possibly could to get the context, he specifically mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that context, he's talking about false prophets. And I want to talk about false prophets. That's our question. How can so many people not just believe lies, but keep repeating them and putting them on signs? They're, they're invested in the lie for some reason, and it's prophesied. It's, it's not just going to be false prophets in the religious community. It's also going to be false prophets. And a, a false prophet, in essence, is just a liar. If, if you boil it down to the, the bare bones, a false prophet is a liar. Because remember, the scripture defines it as somebody who tells you something that they did not see. And in the terms of, did they actually experience that? Did they have an encounter with Adonai? Did they encounter the actual fact? Did they see the event unfold? And what they'll do is they will pass on to you something that is not true because they didn't see it. They're not a prophet. They're false prophets. But there's a prediction there, and it says that what they're going to offer everyone is sensuality. So if you've been studying workbook two, the the Scarlet Harlot and the Crimson Thread, you know the difference between your spirit and your soul and your body. I mean, those are the three basics. There's more levels than that, but there's spirit, soul, and body. And your spirit operates based on it is written because it came from Adonai. It came from heaven. You're, it's it's the breath of Adonai breathed into you. It's always going to function based on it is written. It doesn't care what you think, feel, or want. That's your soul. That's why your soul needs saving. Because often what you think, you feel, and you want are not based on it is written. Have you ever had an unbiblical thought? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had an unbiblical appetite, an unbiblical emotion? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And and that's just something that we're constantly warring against. Do they call it warring, you know, against the flesh? Why? Because that soul is embedded into a vessel of flesh, and the soul and the flesh are in cahoots. That's the way (laughs) they're that close together. (laughs) What the soul decides is going to happen is what the body has to do. It kind of gets dragged along. And therefore, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect, these things make up the soul. The body has to conform to that. Unless you hit the override switch, which is the spirit. The Holy Spirit in you is always going to understand truth. And that's when you'll start to feel that that dissonance in there. You'll start to feel things like, oh, that's not good. There's something vibrating in there. I don't, I don't, there's something in my spirit that's disturbed. It's because your soul is enticing you to do something that your spirit would never tell you to do. And you recognize that within yourself. But if you want to entice a lot of people, you're not going to lie to their spirit. You're going to lie to their soul. 
And the, the lie that you're going to sell to the soul is going to be based on the sensuality of the soul. Remember, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. It's the things you feel. And like we said, sometimes their feelings are lined up with the truth, and sometimes they're lined up with a lie. They're unpredictable. But that's where we've come to today. Whatever we feel like doing today is what we do. It doesn't really matter whether that's written or not. It doesn't matter whether that's truth or not, but it says they're going to exploit you with false words. They're going to twist words. <clears throat> in that context, it helps us understand what's going on in the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the satellite cities. Words have been twisted. And it's we tend to look at one sin that's associated with Sodom, but there's multiple sins. There's, it, it's going to be prefaced by a lot of lying. Somewhere, sometimes, somebody had to say, that's okay. Somebody had to say, that's the law. And that's what we've seen in our generation. I mean, our, our mouths are just hanging open now at the laws that are being passed mm -hmm. that are based on, I think I feel I want, rather than what is written. And we're being told whatever this generation thinks, feels, and wants is actually the, the law should support that, even though tomorrow the world might think differently about that particular thing. They'll just change the law. Well, see, the, the word never changes. It is written, has never changed. It never will change. And it's just a matter of, do you want to be the God of your world? Or do you want to acknowledge him as Elohim, as the God of your world? Clearly, Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to be their own gods. And often that, that is expressed through idolatry. In ancient times, they tended to have some object that they would create, fabricate, turn to, mold, and so forth. They're a little more subtle today, but we still know how they work. And that's how we know that idolatry is rampant today. The weird thing out of that passage to me, though, in 2 Peter, even when I was a little kid, why is it calling Lot righteous? And I'm thinking, righteous compared to who? <laughs> Sodom. That's it. That's all you can do is compare Lot to Sodom, which is unfortunately, Adonai is not comparing us to one another. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. <laughs> I don't want to be compared to other people. I would just prefer to have to deal with my own, right? But in this context, he, he's saying, I want you to understand something about Lot. He had retained at least a little nugget righteousness. He learned something from Uncle Abraham. And what we know about Uncle Abraham is he was exceedingly kind and hospitable. If travelers came up to his tent, he was going to feed them. He was going to, it says he made souls in Haran. Making souls means like you're, you're telling him the good news. What was the good news at that point? There is one God. All these idols you guys are serving, they're nothing. There is one. So Whatever this, that he's doing and making these souls, obviously, Abraham is trying to lead them to Adonai, to lead them to the God that he's encountered. But it points out that Lot was considered righteous in that city, and therefore he was rescued. And often when we, we see the destruction, let's say, of a city, and we think, oh, my goodness, they're all going to be killed. This is going to be a great example for us to look back on. Do we decide who's righteous or does Adonai decide who's righteous? Now, should we intercede yes. for the righteous? Yes, but we're not better than God. We're not kinder than God. And sometimes we think we are. And, and we're asking him to do things that are outside of his character. 
based on it is written. We can't judge one another. We don't know what's in the heart. But those angels knew exactly where to go. They knew who to go with. And that's what it says in the passage. It says, um, Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Do you remember the particular creature whose job is to torment and not kill? The tzila. We call it the hell bug in Revelation, the little creature that comes flying. Millions of them come flying out of Abaddon in Revelation. Remember, their job is to torment you, to bring you to repentance. And so it says he's being tormented day after day. It's like the spirit is contending with him. Lot, you need to get up out of here or you're going to lose everything you have. You're going to linger too long. So he says, um, tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And that's good news. If we pray, if we intercede, then if there are righteous people in a particular city, then Adonai knows how to lead them out. He knows how to protect them. But it, it did make me scratch my head for many years thinking, why is Lot considered righteous? Um, again, maybe it's just in comparison to all the wickedness that's going on. He still had some shred of righteousness. And in the end, he was, he, his two daughters, and then his wife was kind of on the fence and that cost her. Um, he finally followed the angels out and believed them that it was now we've reached a time of total destruction. And that's the question. Why would he remain in such a wicked place? Well, maybe we should ask that of ourselves. Are we hanging out in wicked spots? And we know in our spirit, we shouldn't be hanging around that place. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's something we're doing. It can be people we're hanging out with. Maybe it's movies we're watching. Maybe it's music we're listening to. There's any number of concentrations of wickedness that where we could hang out and we, in our hearts, for example, it's just a little one. Just <laughs> let me hang out with a little bit of this wickedness right here. But why did he remain? And that's the question. Why do any of us remain attached to things that we benefit from when we know in our hearts that this thing is eaten up with immorality? It just goes from lie to lie. Well, often by the time you reach that point, you've hardened your heart so many times, it really is hard to detach from that thing. And we can be a lot like what? We can be surrounded by twisted thinking. We can be surrounded by sin. Hey, we live in Babylon, don't we? We're surrounded. Our problem is, like, where are we going to go? That's that's the nature of our exile. Where are we going to go? The only place we can go is back to it is written. That's our protection place. Mm -hmm. Because he could destroy an entire city, but if he knew we were righteous, he would make sure to deliver us. It says he knows how to do that. And in his behavior, we can see that Lot's not just a total reprobate. He's trying to protect these angels. He's saying, you've got to get out of the town square. You're going to be the victim of an assault out here. They're going to rob you out here. They're going to torture you out here. They're going to try to murder you in the end out here. Rabbi Krieger did a great lesson one time on what was going on in Sodom other than the obvious and the progression of the wickedness. 
it's on a private playlist so not just anybody can see it but it was excellent way of looking at you know it's not this one sin in isolation it's a whole universe of sins that have concentrated in this one spot unfortunately for lot they found out that he was trying to protect these angels the sexual lust the sensuality that we're talking about had overtaken them the bloodlust had overtaken them and they weren't going to rest until they had brutalized and killed these heavenly visitors so the blindness they're struck with it shows you something important it's supernatural no matter how blind you are if we put you right up front on the patio or if we put you in the back of the building couldn't within 5 minutes if you just kind of felt your way around the building could you find a door 5 minutes and the buildings were much smaller back then. <laughs> I don't think Lot was living in a house as big as this building. So it wasn't just normal blind. They were not blind blind. They were confused blind. It was supernatural blindness. What level of wickedness takes you to supernatural blindness? That same level of wickedness that took Egypt to a plague of darkness, where it says they could not see their brother. They could be right there and they couldn't see them. It goes back to, have you hardened your heart over and over? And so that's why when we did the Wars of Kings and we looked at those 10 siege tactics as they related to the 10 plagues, it helps us to understand now that I believe the world is under siege. And I also believe it's trying to lay siege. I think we've got two armies basically at this point, not many. We might have many nations, but I believe we have two armies. I think it's really simple. And as we learn about those siege tactics that are based in the plagues of Egypt, we can see how an entire city, an entire people would be supernaturally blinded. Because even after 10 plagues, the score at this point is Moses 10, Pharaoh 0. Who are you betting on the next time? How, how much do you want to lose money? If it's Moses 10, Pharaoh 0, beyond logic and reason, they hop on their chariots and decide to pursue a people who are clearly protected by the Holy One himself. Clearly, all their gods, except this last one, has been judged. This last one has to be judged at the, the Sea of Reeds. And we believe that his name is Egypt that there's something different uh, than just the Egyptians as people, that there was actually an entity, and we'll look at that passage, that they're calling Egypt. And so what draws them beyond logic, beyond reason? Bloodlust. Bloodlust. They are confused, blind. They can't hear the truth. They can't see the truth. And they have built up so much bloodlust that they think they can prevail in this land attempt. But in both cases, whether we're looking at Sodom or whether we're looking at Egypt, you have a significant portion of the populace who are deceived and they believe lies. And their thinking process toward the end was actually petrified. They had become petrified lies. They continue to believe lies even when you know the spirit of Adonai within them is contending with them. Because see, that's why you're, you're not allowed to rejoice at the Passover Seder when you Remember when you do your grape juice with each of the plagues and you dash it onto the plate to remember the judgments? You're not supposed to have fun at that point because 
even if they are dead Egyptians, they are creations of Elohim, and they reflect something of his image. Why should we rejoice that any of his creation is dead? That's not our place to rejoice. Can we rejoice in him that he prevails over his enemies? Yes, that's completely different than rejoicing at the death of a human being. That's nothing to rejoice over. In fact, it's very sad. The, the, the potential of that many human beings is wasted. And so I'm sure as the father grieves over his creation, no matter what he has to do to them, that we should feel his heart. I mean, how do you feel when a child goes astray? I didn't teach them that. I didn't bring them up to do that. How often do you think you hear that in a courtroom when the parents are sitting there? We didn't teach him that. We didn't bring her up to do that. And I know the Father in Heaven's got to feel the same way. I did not create them to do that. <laughs> but they they just keep believing the lie. And I think idolatry is involved here, which we know it was in Egypt. But one of the worst things you can do, we know, is to hate your brother. Well, if you're going to rob for your brother, if you're going to steal from your brother, if you're going to assault your brother in any way, if you're going to murder your brother, you are not loving your brother. And if you're not loving your brother, you are probably engaging in idolatry. And so this is why they were able to enact these unjust laws to emplace them on an entire city, an entire nation. Some of the laws in Sodom, as, as the sages recount them, were pretty crazy. Like if a visitor came in, they were like a visitor trap. It, it sounds like some sort of freaky movie that probably somebody's dreamed up by now where the unsuspecting visitor drives in, they check into the hotel and you know they're never going to leave. One of the things they would do is they would make them lay down on the bed. And if they didn't fit the bed, they would cut off whatever portion of them hung over. <laughs> and of course, this is Midrash. Do you know if it's true or not? No, but they're giving you ideas about the mindset. What kind of mindset? In other words, if you didn't fit with their ideas, they would start chopping you up. We have to chop you up until you conform to our ways is what that message is about. And we see that more than ever today. If we don't think like they think, if we don't do like they do, then they have to start chopping us off at the wrist and the ankle and, and wherever else to adjust us in to the twisted thinking there you know that again that's part of the the dominance that goes along with it if you think of the the cult of molech where it says they're passing their children through the fire to molech often these concentrations of wickedness they will sacrifice their children now they may not do it exactly the way it's described in the bible like throw a child into the fire but they will do things that put that child in jeopardy of death, the death of the firstborn. Did any Egyptian firstborn have to die? No, they sacrificed their children by not listening to Moses. Um, today, there are children who were brought up with a certain mindset that if I die, my parents will be proud of me because I died for their cause. That was part of the cult of Molech. They said, and, and they said the, the women were a little less on board with this, which makes a whole lot of sense because tearing a baby from a mother is a little bit harder than tearing it from a father, especially, and they say what they wanted, they had certain things they wanted. 
They wanted economic security. There's all sorts of things they wanted. And so they would take this child and the agreement was, if I give this child to the idol, then I'll get the stuff I want. All I have to do is give up this one. And to this day, you can see that practice literally pushing children into a war zone, but you can also see it in mindsets. I have all these things I want to do. I want to live my life. And so we kind of turn our children over to public school systems. We turn them over to other people. And you can see what's happened at the college level now. When we turn our children over to other people to plant their values into those children, now we pay the price of offering our children to molech instead of taking responsibility for what goes into their brains. So the first plague is going to be blood. And remember, this is all prefaced by unjust laws. In what universe would you enact a law that when a Hebrew baby is born, you throw it into the river? That's crazy. But they accepted it and they enforced it or they tried to. So there's there's crazy laws that people will enact and then people will just ride along with it like, well, you know, and then it gets worse. But the first plague on Egypt was blood. And that was the bait for the final judgment on Egypt. Bloodlust will go catch them. What started with blood ended with blood. Blood is actually an attractant to demonic activity. That's why I wanted to read that passage in Corinthians where he's Paul is warning the Corinthians, look, when you share the Kiddush cup, you are remembering the blood of Messiah and you become one people. You're just one heart. You're one people when you do that. When you break the bread, when you do the hamotzi, you become one people, one altar, not many. Many altars are prohibited. And he says, if you're doing this, if you're part of the body of Messiah, then I don't want you sharing with the table of demons. You can't eat at both tables. You're either going to have to offer blood on this altar or this altar. You're either going to have to offer the food on this altar or this altar. That's why a little bit of wickedness really doesn't fly. It's this one or that one. And so blood, as we read in the Torah especially, it explains to us how blood can be an attractant to these things from other realms. We might call them demons. They actually have more specific names than that in scripture. But sacrificing to idols was something the Egyptians did as a part of creating idols for themselves. Was the idol anything until they sacrificed to it? No, you create your own idols. When you start serving it, what it wants, one of those biggies is going to be blood, bloodlust. Then you're going to actually draw it in to your realm. Because if you leave these things alone, there are other created spirit beings out there. There's angels of all different types. There's other sorts of of things that we're calling demons. If you leave them alone, for the most part, they leave you alone because you're not their assignment. There's principalities and powers that are assigned over nations, like the Prince of Persia and so forth. They have specific jobs. And and like uh, he was saying, in, in, or Peter was saying, he's like, people don't know what they're talking about. And they start reviling these majestic angels who are apportioned certain things to do. And they don't even understand what they're doing. They're talking about things they don't even know about. And so they start reviling things that are actually put over the nations to, to do our job that we abdicated. We should actually be the ones ruling and reigning with King Messiah. 
which that's coming. But right now, there's principalities and powers that are going to have to be knocked out of place. We see that in Revelation as the stars begin to fall. Those have to be knocked out of place in order for Israel to arise and to begin to judge again, as they were supposed to do from the 12 gates of Jerusalem. Um, but when you begin to practice certain things, or you on purpose try to access these spirits from another realm, you're creating an idol. You're creating it by bringing it into a realm it was not designed or assigned to. And you were also crossing into a realm for which you were never designed or assigned. That's not your place to be. Nevertheless, we've got witches, warlocks, necromancers, sorcerers, all those things we're told to stay away from in scripture. There's a reason. Those are unclean things. When you cross the realm, there's an uncleanness. There's a ritual impurity that is imparted. And that's why you hear them referred to as unclean things, unclean spirits, as well as demons. And there's classes of demons that are much more damaging than, say, an unclean spirit. But they usually start with something unclean. Which book of the Bible tells us how to deal with unclean things? Leviticus. Which one do people typically not enjoy? Leviticus. Leviticus. <laughs> but you know that I believe twice in the prophets, the priests of Israel were accused of doing Hamas because they did not teach the people the difference between clean and unclean. They weren't teaching them the book of Leviticus. It's hard to hear a sermon on Leviticus unless you're doing Torah portions. But those are actually describing to us how to manage these states when we might be associated with death in some way, associated with bloods or body fluids, um, things that are kind of sketchy as it concerns spirits from another realm. This is the way you manage it and you're protected. There's nothing to be afraid of. And that's what Paul says. Is an idol anything? No, leave it alone. You follow the word and it really doesn't have anything to do with you. It's nothing. Does that mean there aren't malevolent spirits out there who might attack you? There are. And we're going to talk about who's generating those and why they might hate you. But in its own realm, typically, it's not an idol. It's an idol when you start crossing the barrier and enticing it in. So we are told to flee from idolatry, not to do the things that are going to attract the demonic activity. And in fact, in Leviticus 19.4, we're specifically told, do not turn to idols. And uh, as we were studying the Sefer HaChinuk, it explained what that means. It says, if you turn after them, you make them into idols. Just leave them alone. Deuteronomy 32.16 describes to us one way that you can attract a demon. It says, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils. That Hebrew word there is shedim. It's a shade, a shade. They said, not to God. To gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. And so the Israelites had no business trying to access these idols. Why in the world does anybody go to an idol? So it'll give you what you want. It's, it's a Santa Claus. <laughs> Seriously, an idol is a Santa Claus. You figure out what you need. You select the appropriate idol out of the pantheon. You go sacrifice to that idol. And now, see, you get to be God because now you pick what you get. Whereas our prayer as believers is, Father, not my will, but yours be done 
if it's your will, this is what I need. If it's your will, this is what I'd like to do. There's a complete difference. In general, though, like I say, the Shadim, it also refers to the Elilim. That's, these are two, I would call them species of demons. I don't know what, we don't want to study demons too much because we're not supposed to turn around and learn about these idols. So we want to stick with what scripture tells us, but we don't want to go learn about them because there's an influence that can take place there. That's why it's not cute when kids are given Harry Potter books. It's not cute. It's not harmless. It's not fun. It's demonic. You're teaching your children to consult demons. You're teaching them the craft of accessing demons. And that's before we ever get into the Halloween discussion. So these creatures, whatever they are, they have their own assigned business. They were created to do something, but it's not our business. They have form, but they don't have matter. I'll let you think that's kind of a science way of looking at it. They have form, but they don't have matter. And in fact, if we were to see them, they would probably be very frightening. In scripture, when people see angels or things from other realms, it's very terrifying. Even if they're good ones, it's terrifying. We love you. And Hashem, I'll see you back next Shabbat. Have a great week next week. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray. Offer that frankincense and myrrh. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.